0: Thanks to everybody for being here, both in person and those of you who are joining us on the web. Very excited today to have an opportunity to speak with Professor um, Rachel Barkow about her uh, new book. Um, Rachel, you're a professor at NYU Law School. You are a graduate of Northwestern University and Harvard Law School. You clerked for Judge Silberman here on the DC circuit, and then Justice Scalia. And your work is focused on uh, criminal law, and more specifically, criminal justice reform. And you've served on the US sentencing commission. And you have written this really wonderful book, *Prisoner, Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. And um, so, welcome. Thank, Thank you for joining us here at Cato. Thanks for having me. Sort of by way of setting this up for the audience, I, I, I'm I, Clark Neely. I'm, I'm Vice President for Criminal Justice here at the Cato Institute. And I, I joined Cato about a year and a half ago, and it was a big career change for me, because before that I was a constitutional litigator at the Institute for Justice. But I got very interested in criminal law issues, um, particularly from litigating civil forfeiture cases at the Institute for Justice. Those who don't know, civil forfeiture is a law enforcement tool that enables uh, police and other uh, government agents to uh, take your stuff by asserting that it was involved in some criminal activity, but not proving it. Um, in theory, somewhere down the line, they would one day have to prove it. But basically, it never gets that far. Almost never gets that far. They just get to keep it. So I had real misgivings, both about civil forfeiture itself, but also about the larger system in which it operates. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more concerned I became and um, had the opportunity to come here to Cato to work on criminal justice work. And I think um, there's a lot of reasons why we should be concerned about uh, criminal justice and criminal justice reform. but probably the leading one for me is that it's the, um, it's, it's the point of most fraught contact for many citizens in this country um, and agents of the state, and often armed agents of the state. And so in some ways, it's really where the rubber hits the road, and it's important that we get it right. And my sense in working criminal justice reform is that it, it reminds me a bit of the, the, you know, the story about the, the five blind men all touching an elephant, different parts of the elephant, and uh, reporting different things. But there's a little twist with criminal justice reform because essentially what everybody's doing is they're touching the elephant, and and it's a sick elephant. And then they're they're all offering different diagnoses. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong, and so forth. What I think is um, particularly remarkable about about your book is that, um, just as we have been trying to do at Cato, it, it seems to really try to get to the root of things, to get to the heart of What the problem is, and um, and so for that reason alone, I would commend it to everybody's attention. But it's also, um, it, it's a book that's just absolutely chock full of information, and yet still incredibly readable. So
1: thank you. Yes, mm.
0: would you um, try to set the stage, if you would, by giving us a sense of your um, perception of how concerned we should be about our criminal justice system and about the issue of criminal justice reform. There are so many things for us to, you know, that that, that compete for our attention. Uh, The the situation at the border, the national debt, healthcare, uh, foreign policy, where, in your view, should 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 criminal justice reform be on this you know this this sort of uh, whole list of concerns?
1: Okay, I'd want you to put it in your top five. I would say um, so. I'll let you have four others, but I at least want it in there. And the reason I think you should be concerned about it is we're at the point now in the United States where one in three adults has some form of a criminal record, which means one out of every three adults has now had contact with the state in a capacity where they were threatening them with arrest, conviction, sentencing, being locked in a cage. So it's an enormous sweep of the American public that has contact with the criminal justice system at this point in time. And the number of people at the end of that who find themselves incarcerated is also astronomically high. You know, We have the world's highest incarceration rate um, by far and historically for our country, you know, it didn't look like this in the United States before. You know, it starts in the 1970s and and climbs ever upward, but before that time, we had nothing that looked like this. So it's the expansion of a punitive state that's got no historical precedent for us that leads the world and touches all these lives and in the process it is based on lots of disparities, disparities on the basis of race, um, targets people who are poor, uh, leaves all kinds of human misery. And then the the kicker, I would say, is you're not getting public safety out of it. You know, if it was doing something effective, if it was protecting society, it was pursuing a government end that would make you feel better. You know, then maybe you'd have a conversation about okay, it, it leaves all these horrible things, but what are the benefits? When you look at the benefit side, you actually find this terrible policy. It makes pretty much everything it's trying to solve worse. Uh, because when all of those people who've had involvement with the criminal justice system come back out, and 95% of them do, they are worse off for that experience. And they are more likely to commit crimes as a result of what the government just did than they were before. So I would put it high on the list, both because of the human misery, the racial discrimination, its failure to achieve public safety. It costs a fortune, so it's also wasting your taxpayer dollars. Um, and. It's the kind of situation that I think anyone who takes the time to look at it would agree we could do better. So I I think it's also a nice issue in that way because I could give this talk, I feel, at any number of organizations uh, around the country on the left or the right. And I think as people look closely at it, they realize, Wow, this is terrible, and we need to fix it and they might be motivated more or less by some of these concerns, but pretty much everyone who looks closely at criminal justice in America realizes pretty quickly, as you did um, that it needs to be fixed.
0: Thank you for that. Um, what I thought I might do is, is provide a you know a kind of a a summary, at least what, what I took from the book, and then uh, we'll, we'll sort of break it down and, and talk about. And well, first, I'll give you the chance to correct me if I misunderstood your book, and then we'll break it down to some of the um, discrete issues. But what I took from the book is first, that it's not simply that our criminal justice system um, stands in need of improvement, it's that it is systematically dysfunctional or even broken in certain ways. So it's an urgent problem. It's not just this, you know, this is something that could use our attention, it's an urgent problem. Second, um, uh, That it flows from certain root causes, that uh, and including particularly, um, you you use the term penal populism, by which I understand you to mean essentially that um, when it comes to criminal justice policy, a lot of it is just people sort of voting with their gut, and in some cases responding to the darker urges that we have, um, and uh, not sort of an enlightened sense of justice, but a kind of a you know a darker and more primitive sense of justice that translates oftentimes directly into policy, and then the system. uh, basically is operated by people who respond to incentives like the rest of us do, um, particularly prosecutors who have significant perhaps even outsized um, um, influence on the system. and then um, finally th- what you offer is a, um, a kind of a, a set of, of suggestions or prescriptions that are um, some of which are um, sort of uh, in keeping with or analogous to what else has been proposed. But what's really fresh about the book, I think, is your um, suggestion that some of the best solutions might be a little more oblique um, or or come at some of the problems um, from an angle as opposed to taking them head on, like mandatory minimums. If you try to re- repeal a mandatory minimum, you're going to get a big fight on that. So maybe there's we can come at that one from an angle. Is that so? Um, I- I'd love for you to react to that summary of the book. Um, if it's wrong, please correct me. Um, and then you know, feel free to elaborate on anything that, that 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 strikes you right now.
1: No, that was great summary. Thank you for that and for the careful read. Um, so I would like to emphasize the fact that we. So you might think, how do you get at something that I described initially that's that bad? <laughs> you know, you know, who does that? Who creates something like that? And I think if you look deeply at where we and ended up here, you do find that it's just the sum total of a lot of decisions by people who are very afraid of something. You know, there's something they see on the news or there's something that a politician has highlighted that has them concerned about their personal safety, um, worried about a high profile crime and, you know, what it may mean going forward. Um, And people act out of fear. They'll, They'll kind of do almost anything when people are afraid, and and you do look over time at various policies that come out of that. And you know, some of it is, I would say, it's both a combination of fear and also a desire to exact retribution for th- you know the the bad crimes that you see when people do horrible things to each other. People want justice done, and that's completely reasonable. Um, it's just that once that gets into the cycle of policy making, if it's just purely based on emotion without stepping back and asking, oh, okay, wait, actually how should we deal with this issue, you end up with very bad policies as a result of that. So, you know, if you were to think about, you know, the example I like from recent events in in criminal justice, if you looked at the analog of the two planes that had their crashes, the criminal justice type response to that would be we would never fly again. It wouldn't be that we would ground two particular planes. We'd figure out what was wrong with them and how to fix them. It would be, this is all unsafe, and we have to get rid of it. And you know, So examples of that would be a jurisdiction has a system of parole, so to look and see how does a person change over time if one person on parole goes out and commits a particularly violent crime that gets a lot of media attention, we have seen jurisdiction after jurisdiction in the United States just say, well, we got to get rid of parole. You know, just like we got to get rid of all air travel. You know, it's not something that was wrong with this person's parole profile or what this person received as supervision or how could we readjust. It's, parole as a net needs to go away. And, you know, you see that play out with countless criminal justice policies. So I agree with you completely that it's this idea that whatever the emotional reaction is to something then translates immediately with no intermediary into policy. Um, and, and that's not a really great idea if what we want to achieve is better public safety outcomes because we often get rid of whole programs that work well on net but just had, you know, one or two bad outcomes, but we'd want to keep them generally Instead, because people are so um, outraged or nervous, uh, you just end up getting rid of, of, of everything. And then, you know, just to add one other point to what you said, which I think is worth emphasizing, is, you know, now at this point with a system as big as the one that we have, um, there's a lot of people who have a stake in keeping it exactly the way it exists. So, you know, it builds up over time because people are afraid. And, and then as a result of that, you know, we build more and more prisons. We build more and more jails. Um, that means there's people who work there um, who rely on that. Um, their communities rely on that for sources of income and jobs. There are lots of prosecutors who are hired around the country, you know, thousands of them. um, And it helps them to have certain policies in place to make their job easier. So a mandatory minimum sentence is a really great thing for a prosecutor because it helps them get cooperation from uh, defendants. And it uh, helps them exact leverage so people plead guilty. And they don't have to go to trial. They don't have to prove anything anymore. And so they like those things. When we think about scaling back so we could talk about the studies of mandatory minimums. They're not a good idea. Um, but there's a, now there's a lobbying force in place that wants to keep them there. So I would say it's those two things together. There's the kind of initial impetus where people are very nervous about something, and politicians want to respond to that, and, and they will propose what looks to be a quick, easy solution. Then that solution comes into place, and then that in turn creates this dynamic of a whole bunch of people who want to keep it just the way it is, even if it's not working very well.
0: Right. So we're going to pick up on a number of, of, of points that you made there, including definitely mandatory minimums and, and, and the role they play in our system, with, along with some other what I would characterize as coercive levers that, um, that add up to uh, the practical elimination of the criminal jury trial. But first. <laughs> um, Another thing I want to talk about is how policy does and doesn't get made. Um, but first, can you can you can you share with us your thoughts about um, what do you think are, are the ways in which our criminal justice system are kind of um, most fundamentally um, broken, or what are the most fundamental kind of pathologies that you see in the criminal justice system? We talked earlier about how um, some people in the criminal justice space you know, they, they they kind of focus on on various problems um, and treat them almost as if they're distinct. Well, there's you know there's Pre-trial detention, and there's recidivism, uh, and there's sentencing. Uh, but can we can we kind of step back and say what are the root problems as far as you see?
1: Oh, okay, that's a that's a doozy. So I'll get at a couple of them. So I think one would be a conventional assumption that severity is better. So I'll start with that, which I do think there's a kind of gut instinct that that. Um, than any of us might have that, well the toughest punishment we have must be the best one. To deter people, to incapacitate people, that must be the best approach. But it turns out when you start to look at evidence about whether or not that's true, it all comes apart. Um, In fact, people aren't deterred by those long sentences. What matters more for people is whether they're going to get caught, um, not the consequence if they do. Uh, And you could certainly reduce sentences by a lot and it wouldn't have an effect on deterrence. Um, And then on incapacitation what we tend to forget is 95% of the people who are incarcerated come back out again. So you have to weigh whatever value you're getting while you're holding somebody in detention against the greater risk they pose when they come out because they have been locked away for so long that their prospects on reintegration are so much more difficult. So that kind of Key piece of conventional wisdom, I'd say, is one of the biggest pathologies. And you get that from having a popular decision making process that assumes that's the case and therefore supports those policies. So, unless you had some kind of mediating institution that said, hey, yo, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the right way to deal with things, maybe instead we should be putting more of our emphasis on what happens to people while they're incarcerated, shorter terms, and doing more to get the kinds of programming and uh, prisons that, that work to help people reintegrate. Um, or thinking about pretrial detention, you know, to say again the piecemeal approach. You know, pretrial detention, it's the same idea. Oh, let's lock people away, uh, then they won't commit more crimes afterwards. You know, is, that's not true either. Uh, and if you think about the people who are even a day or two, being detained pretrial. These are people who are likely living at the margins as it is. They're going to lose their job. They're probably going to lose whatever child care arrangement they have. They may lose their children uh, because of what of the fact that they're locked away for a couple of days. So their whole life can unravel in just a few days of pretrial detention. So when they're released from that, Think about: Are they more likely to commit a crime in that circumstance? Yes, and so the and it's
0: pre-trial detention. They haven't right. even been determined to have done anything wrong.
1: But again, it comes from this kind of gut instinct of, oh, let's let's lock them away so they don't pose a risk. Without thinking about, they're coming. They are coming out, and when they do, what have we what have we done? Um, and so I would say the root cause of all of that is this notion that letting people kind of make a kind of common sense gut reaction. Uh, assumption about things without stepping back and saying, well, do we actually know that that's true? Have we looked to see what happens when we do it? And then when we do that, we, we have validated studies. It's not controversial that this is not working well, um, that we don't have in place an institutional structure that allows the better information to dictate what we should be doing. And so it's, that's the kind of key, key problem. But I would say it comes from these Kind of a common sense assumptions people have that turn out to not be accurate, uh, but then that translate immediately into policies, and we could do that across you know a bunch of these. Po- and I go through in the book just a whole host of examples of this phenomenon that I think is a problem.
0: So there's, um, I think there's a parallel point, because it, it, it's a distinct point that you make in the book that I think um, would be a good time to comment on, and that is that um, there seems to be some evidence that the punishments that people say they support for a particular crime in the abstract oh, right. are different from what they would, uh, let's say, that they were on a jury, and there's only a handful of states where jurors are, you know have any involvement in sentencing, as you know, but where if they were and somehow responsible for deciding what the punishment should be in the, in, you know, as to an actual particular person, there's a differential between what, you know, their abstract sense of what punishment should be versus their, their real one. And, and the differential is usually in favor of less punishment for the, the actual person. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so that's another key part. I'm glad that you brought that up. So when people are afraid of things, you know, so they're afraid of the things that we see on TV and in social media, which are the worst crimes, you know, the most awful things that one human being could do to another. That's what makes the news and what gets attention. And so when there's a policy solution proposed, that's what we all have in our mind as the target of the policy. So drug trafficking, people are thinking of kingpins. If you go back and you look at the legislative history in the 80s and 90s and what Congress was talking about when it passed federal drug laws, it's Kingpins, it is high level traffickers. So it's the idea of saying we need a 20 year mandatory minimum to get at the leaders of these drug conspiracies. You know, fast forward to how those laws actually get applied, and they get applied to every single person who's selling drugs. So the person on the corner, uh, a courier who's bringing drugs over the border in a backpack who has like lowest level on the totem pole of that organization everyone's getting hit with the mandatory minimum. Because
0: if it's, a, if, they, if it's charged as a conspiracy, everybody's on the hook for the total amount distributed, right?
1: Right, because there's no reflection when the law gets passed of how this play out in practice and who might be affected, because we're focusing on the, the kingpin. same would be true of sex offenders. You could ask yourself, who do you have in mind if I say the word sex offender? And most people are thinking about child abductions, stranger rapes. Um, in fact, sex offender registration requirements end up applying to people who urinate in public. You know, they got drunk and they didn't want to wait for a bathroom and they find themselves exposed in public. In a lot of states, that meets the definition of a sex offender. Uh, people who uh, go to sex workers, prostitutes, they're on the sex offender registry. Teens who send uh, sexually explicit messages to each other, they're sexting. You mean teens? Yes, they can be on... Just genes. We have experts on that, I know, Um, but but, um, that is the kind of thing that people aren't thinking about when they're thinking of sex offenders. And so when you think of who's ending up on a registry and who's going to have all these collateral consequences for a sex offender, they were set with the worst child abductions in mind, but they're going to apply more broadly. And so when people are on juries or they see the facts of a particular case, that's the dynamic you're talking about, where they'll say, oh, my gosh, no. They may have well-voted for the law that established the bigger penalty, but that's because they were thinking of somebody else. Uh, and when they get into the nitty-gritty of these actual cases, all of a sudden they realize, wow, it's insane. Who would apply it to this? This is crazy. Uh, but yet they do. And we see that. You know, I have a whole chapter on this dynamic um, with many examples. These aren't the only ones of just this phenomenon, and it's, it's also a problem for the proportion of punishment that people get, and then how the law gets enforced. So who gets hit with this is largely determined by who gets um, policed and who gets prosecuted.
0: Um, One thing I learned uh, while working with my colleague Jay Schweikert on an amicus brief is that um, if um, because of the way federal law is written, uh, and this is terrifying uh, because I've got two kids, so I know what's coming um, or what might be coming. If, um, if two teenagers are engaged in a perfectly consensual and perfectly legal sexual relationship, one of them's 18, one of them 17, which is legal in every state, and the 18-year-old takes some pictures, doesn't even just could be a nude pictures, doesn't even have to be engaged in any particular activity, um, and those go up to the cloud, that is then a federal crime. Technically, that is considered the production of child pornography for which there is a 15-year mandatory minimum. And someone who finds themselves in that position, the only thing that stands between them and a 15-year prison sentence is the discretion of a prosecutor. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are living in a time where you are really relying on the prosecutorial discretion, uh, the discretion of a prosecutor to decide whether or not you 're going to be charged with any number of things by the way I mean that is how you end up with how you have one in three American adults <laughs> with some kind of a criminal record um, because the sweep of our laws is so expansive and it hasn't hit everyone yet, but there's probably, and I always like to tell my criminal law class that, you know, there is, you probably all committed a crime. You know, I could probably find at least one that you have committed in, in the jurisdiction that we're living in, um, and it's really just the virtue of not being the target of discretion that you haven't found yourself prosecuted and charged with it. But, but the power is out there in the government to do it, and, and you know, I do think that should concern us.
0: Um, I want to jump ahead because that, that actually touches on something I wanted to ask you about, um, and we might as well do it now. Um, there's another passage in the book that struck me, um, in part just because I already agree with it, um, but that <laughs> there was a time when the concept of a felony really meant something, that um, a felon was was somebody who had really transgressed in a way that was was truly antisocial, that, that really sort of... Um, was indicative of somebody who's, who's, you know, a sort of genuinely bad person and a criminal. And it seems to me that we've, we've, or um, well, one could make an argument. I think you do, uh, to some extent, make an argument in the book that we've, in some sense, we've kind of trivialized this concept, right? Because in a sense, um, most of us are felons. It's just there's some distinction between those of us who have been caught and successfully prosecuted, and those of us who have not. Is that a fair? you know, take?
1: No, I think that's right. I mean, the concept of what qualifies as a felony in most jurisdictions, I think, would surprise people. I mean, sometimes you hear about the cases on the news. Uh, You know, I think recently, after the Paul Manafort sentence, there was some outpouring of examples from various public defenders around the country, saying, "Hey, just so you know, you know, I just had a client who stole a couple hundred dollars worth of quarters from laundry machines, and they they were offered three and a half to seven years, you know, for what they had done. Um, Low-level thefts like that—that's a felony. Um, drug, uh, various drug charges, you know, that's a felony. Uh, regulatory crimes you might not think of uh, as being felonies; those are felonies." Uh, Extortion, bribery. Have you ever threatened a merchant that you would post something negative about their product if they didn't do something to remedy the situation? In a lot of states, that's actually a, that's actually a felony. Um, so there are many things like that 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 dilute the meaning of the term. And we have so many people who are charged with felonies in the United States. So there's the kind of group of people who find themselves not charged because of discretion. But then there's all the people who are. And as a result of that, they then get hit with all kinds of collateral consequences that we have in our laws that apply to people with felony convictions. And that is a one-size-fits-all set of collateral consequences. So it doesn't take the time to say, hey, well, what was your felony? You know, So it's going to lump together somebody who committed multiple homicides with the person who steals those quarters. And they're all going to be banned, for example, from various benefits. They may lose their driver's license, uh, the right to vote, the right to serve on a jury. Uh, they're going to lose all kinds of public welfare and food stamp kinds of benefits as a result of their convictions and lots of abilities to get licensed in their state for certain professions. I mean, the list is endless. Well, really. and for
0: non-citizens, there's a the very real risk of deportation. Exactly. And it's it's just
1: for this lump category of, you know, people with, with felonies. And so the term... and. and And the label gets attached to people, I think, you know, pejoratively and wrongly, oh, you know, that's a felon, and it's supposed to have a connotation to it, as you said, of like the worst transgressor, when in fact you know, that is a a label that can apply to so many different kinds of things that I think we would say, sure, people make mistakes, and they should have consequences for their mistakes, but nothing like the kinds
0: of consequences we're imposing on people. Um, So, a statistic that was absolutely shocking to me, um, and that I Therefore, sort of repeat whenever I have the opportunity, and there is an opportunity now, was um, that, notwithstanding declining clearance rates for violent crimes, homicide and other violent crimes. So you know, uh, it's very clear that law enforcement across the board is less effective at solving. Homicides are the easiest one; we've, we've seen plummeting uh, clearance rates there. But but basically, it's clear there's a, they could be doing a lot better. We've got tens of thousands of untested rape kits. We've got unsolved homicides, et cetera, et cetera, and yet. In 2016, there were more—and notwithstanding the fact that we we know what direction the country is headed uh, in on marijuana policy—in 2016 there were more arrests for marijuana possession than for all violent index crimes combined. Index crime is the more serious violent crimes that the FBI keeps track of. But so what I um, see—and you know, granted through my libertarian lenses—but what I see there is is essentially law enforcement continuing to ravage the low-hanging fruit by enforcing criminal laws that don't really make the community any better at the same time that they're failing to do an effective job of, um, of, of, of preventing and ultimately solving uh, crimes that really do make people's lives worse. Um, let's talk a bit about, like, that's just an example, but it's a, it's a striking example. Why is this happening?
1: Yeah, so it's it's horrible, actually. If you look at the clearance rates for rapes and murders, you know, less than 50% likelihood that they're going to catch the perpetrator. And, police clearance rates where they're low as you point out in many of those same places though they have very high arrest rates for very low level kinds of you know shoplifting type offenses for low low dollar amounts marijuana possession and distribution things like that so you know how do you how do you get that well one thing we could think about is what are police rewarded for doing? you know what is you know what what gets measured is what gets done, and so if you were in a police department that was focused on you know what did you do today, officer, and I'm just going to look at the number of arrests that you've made, that's all i'm going to care about as an officer. I mean they're just responding to the incentives that their departments are creating for them, so there's a Temptation to just churn then out the kinds of arrests that get counted. You know that will lead to then you can get overtime because you'll go you'll go into court. You'll testify in these cases. There's professional reasons to do it. Prosecutors, same kind of thing. They're going to get rewarded within most prosecutors' offices for convictions and long sentences. That's what gets applauded. That's what gets the pat on the back. Not, wow, I'm really glad you found the right diversion program for somebody. Um, But we should be rewarding that, just like we should be rewarding the officer who spends time to investigate the more serious crimes. Uh, But that's not what ends up getting... The you know the plot you know the the good rewards within these office cultures and you know part of that is a dynamic of the institutions that these people work in. Part of it is 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 media. So when prosecutors focus on these high-profile cases, it's because that's what's in the news. That's what's getting reported. No one's reporting what kind of job they're doing in terms of creating better re-entry programming in their jurisdiction or how they're helping with pretrial detention. You know they're focused on there was this one case and what did you do, prosecutor? Um, and then you do have. Law enforcement at that point defending this kind of policy, and so you know they will say, "No, this is good for public safety. It's good that we're making all these arrests, and you know we're out there defending public safety." When in fact, the other thing we've learned and we know is arresting all these people for low-level offenses. You know, it's predominantly communities of color, poor communities, and what it does is it de- delegitimizes the police in those places. Um, you know. For starters, because there's all these interactions now with the police and people in the communities for low-level offenses, every one of those interactions poses the risk that it could lead to the use of force by the officer. You know, all too often it becomes deadly force, and we see people getting killed by the police who are unarmed because that situation escalates and the officer becomes afraid. And when those things happen in communities around the country, we find that, those communities stop trusting the police. I mean, it makes perfect sense that that would happen. And if you no longer trust the police, you don't call the police when there are problems, and you don't cooperate with the police when they're investigating more serious crimes, and you stay as far from the police as you possibly can. And, and guess
0: what that does to their ability to solve? That's serious your crimes?
1: clearance rates go down. Yep. You know, so it is. Um, it, they are related to each other in these really fundamental ways, and it's you know it's just tragic because you are seeing the police focus on not the people they should be focused on. And And by virtue of doing that, they're making it harder for them to do the job that I think most of us agree we would want them to be doing, the kinds of cases we'd want them to be
0: focused on. There's uh, a really dismaying passage in your book where you say that some prosecutors have admitted openly that they use drug charges and the long sentences that accompany them to incarcerate people they believe are dangerous for other reasons, even when they lack proof. So in effect, uh, if I understand what you're saying there correctly, that basically what prosecutors will do is they'll take a... Uh, a crime that's easier to to investigate and and prove, or, or or to obtain a conviction for, and essentially use that as a proxy. Because well, I know this guy's uh, you know a bad person, did some really bad stuff. Right. I can't prove that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna send him away for a long time on this this drug charge. Um, I find that revolting, morally revol- revolting. That's a that, that there's a if that's happening, that is a real stain on the system.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, and yet. I think the fact that prosecutors will tell you openly that they are doing that uh, reflects the fact that they don't share the view that that is a revolting practice. I mean, they instead think of it as, you know, hey, trust us. We're, We're the guardians of public safety. And you need to give us tools to make it easier for us to do our job. And one of the tools you should be giving us is a variety of criminal charges that we can bring, preferably with long mandatory minimum sentences so that there's no uncertainty that if this person Gets convicted, the judge might go lenient. That it'll just be me, the prosecutor, by virtue of bringing the charge, I I set the punishment. By being able to threaten that, by being able to do that, they can they can extract pleas and they can achieve what they believe to be a just result. And and I think the fact that they say it openly, I don't want to suggest that they're doing this in bad faith because I I really do believe that they are doing this in good faith. That they they believe that people have committed worse things, but they want to figure out how could, I, how could I get the right punishment for this person without having to risk the trial and do all these other things that may be more difficult. The easiest thing for me to be able to do would be to threaten with a mandatory minimum charge, let's say in a drug case, which is much harder to defend. Um, and you know, presumably the, this defendant has done that uh, and get the long sentence for that. And they will say- Best openly, case scenario, they've actually done it. Yes, yes. And they will say openly that that is what they're doing, um, but that it's an important law enforcement tool. So, whenever jurisdictions have tried to roll back mandatory minimum drug sentences, they have heard this from prosecutors around the country. Don't do this. You, are, you don't realize what you're doing. This is a very bad thing that you'd be doing for law enforcement. It will really take a hit on cooperation and on pleas. And I think implicit in that is the idea you know, jury trials, constitutional trials, they're too hard. Um, you know, we'd like to be able to have an end run around that. And, I, you know, every time I hear it, it really bothers me that there's an assumption that the prosecutor is in the right place to judge whether that person really did those other crimes. Because what we are doing when we set up a system like that is we are trusting that one person to be the judge and jury for the individual who's being charged, that they are, in fact, guilty of those other offenses that they're claiming that they did, and that the prosecutor is so unsure of their ability to persuade a group of that defendant's peers at a jury trial, they're so afraid they might lose it that they want this other tool. That tells me their case is actually not so strong about that other incident. violence and that, in fact, maybe the person didn't actually do it. And, you know, maybe they should have a check on their ability and their judgment in those cases, whether it's actually right. But, But that's not the sensibility that you would get from talking to them as a kind of professional organization. And again, I don't think it's bad faith. I think it really is the thought that, um, you know, hey, just trust me. I'm, I'm doing what I think is best here, and I'd like to have as many tools as possible to do it. But I do think we as citizens should really take a close look at that and ask, why would we trust someone with that kind of power? There's a reason that the framers put in the Constitution the kinds of checks on the government that they did in criminal cases. You know, that is, that is the dominant theme of the Bill of Rights, is worrying about the government going too far in a criminal proceeding against somebody and being able to cage a citizen for something they have done, you know we should want that to be the best process we could offer anyone. Um, we should all want it, not just because one out of three people now is having involvement with criminal justice themselves, but we should want it as a matter of public safety because we should want the right people being targeted for these things. And it creates a dynamic that doesn't actually sift and sort very well because it really does end up being that you get the prosecutor going after the kind of easiest cases to Bring the cases where they can exercise this kind of leverage and oversight. And it, it does create, I think, bad outcomes on a host of reasons. And, you know, just to add to it, um, and it's enormously racially disparate in the outcomes. When you look at who ends up uh, on the other end of those prosecutor uh, charges and threats, uh, we know it's disproportionately people of color. Mandatory minimums and how they're applied disproportionately applied on the basis of race. So in addition to all its other faults, it has uh, the added horror of also having disparate impacts on the basis of race.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> um, I want to quote another passage from the book, and um, this is sort of a um, – I'm indulging myself here because one of, the, one of the most frustrating things I think I hear from proponents of, of the system – um, is they'll re- react to something about you know this uh, the idea that there are more arrests for marijuana possession than for all violent crimes. Oftentimes the response is, well, listen, I you know I don't make the laws, I just enforce them, right? right. So the passage I want to read, and then I'd like I'd love to sort of um, have a little conversation about this. You write that uh, law enforcement officials stand ready to fight any significant change that would undermine their almost complete discretion to operate the system to their own advantage. It's a pretty strong charge. So, defendant
1: okay so I back that up just so everybody knows um, in fact I wanted more footnotes and endnotes in the book but they stopped me because uh,
0: they said by the way that's a high-hanging curve that didn't break so <laughs> feel free to take it out of the park
1: uh, no so I just uh, so so yes they do that um, and we have all kinds of proof that they do that so prosecutors are the leading lobbying group on criminal justice in the United States um, actually just true uh, they go the Department of
0: Justice has an, uh, a whole office devoted
1: yes to lobby. Uh, the yep. Department of Justice lobbies for criminal justice legislation, and they are the chief lobbyist for criminal legislation at the federal level. And what do they lobby for? They lobby for the things that make their jobs easier. So when you look at a legislative hearing or transcript to find who's in there advocating for mandatory minimum sentences and longer punishments, um, it's prosecutors. Uh, In my home state of New York right now, they're considering various changes to criminal justice policies, and the leading opponent is the district attorney's Association. And that is very true and characteristic around the country whenever jurisdictions are thinking about criminal reforms or changes. There's almost always a district attorneys association in there, some consortium of prosecutors saying, bad idea, whatever it is. You want pretrial detention? Oh, bad idea. You know, you want to get rid of cash bail, bad idea. Um, you know, you're thinking of getting rid of gravity knives, that's one of our things in New York, you know, bad idea. So whatever it is, they're they're in there and they're lobbying. And I think one thing to me that is always very Telling is what they're choosing to lobby on. And just coincidentally, it always happens to be things that make their job easier. So, having longer sentences, you know, where are they when we, so we know that pretrial detention, as I told you, is bad for public safety. So, they come in and they say, We are the guardians of public safety. They should be in there in the legislature, but they should be arguing on the other side. They should be saying, oh gosh, yes, we detain way too many people pretrial, and they commit more crimes afterwards as a result. So yes, we need to fix this. But they don't. When we see district attorneys, all to, there's a handful of exceptions to this. But for the most part, when you see prosecutors arguing about these issues, they're in there because they want the power to threaten people with pretrial detention. Because who's more likely to plead guilty? Someone who has to stay in a jail while they're awaiting their trial and their right to prove themselves innocent um, or someone who is walking free? Of course, someone who's detained just wants to get out. And so let's so,
0: not just say a jail. Why don't yeah. we say the hellscape of Rikers Island? Right. No, absolutely. It's uh, not just a jail. The
1: conditions are deplorable in most of our nation's uh, pretrial detention facilities. Just really awful. Um, and, you know, they're housing people in en masse. So everyone, again, is mixed together. So the people who are waiting their trials for very violent offenses are intermixed with people who are waiting uh, for their trials for less violent offenses. And they're they're kind of all in there together. And it does not create a very safe environment for anybody. And they're, there's almost no programming. They're awful. But if you're in there and you're waiting for your trial, and someone offers you the chance to get out to plead guilty, you are more likely to take that that plea offer. And so, even if a, you're innocent, yes, and we know that happens. We have all kinds of documented cases of people who've been proven innocent through DNA evidence and otherwise, um, but they they pleaded guilty because they just didn't want to they didn't want to be detained any longer and they didn't want to take the risk of going to trial. So prosecutors see it as a tool for them to do their job. So we see them on, I would say, the wrong side of that issue if they're claiming to be guardians of public safety. And, and we see them just conspicuously silent on a host of issues that involve public safety that maybe don't affect how they do their job, um, but they, they don't seem to care. You know, So where are they when it comes to prison programming? We should have programs in our prisons that make it easier for people to reenter when they come out. And it's an enormous public safety priority that should be for all of us, should be for prosecutors radio silence. Um, somebody, you know, the I, I recently wrote about this because it caught my eye that when police officers shoot unarmed people, um, it's a tough standard of proof to bring those cases. Um, and it's also the case in many jurisdictions like California where this recently happened. There's no obligation on the part of the officer to de-escalate first or to um, take a look at did the officer do something to create the situation that required the use of deadly force. That's just not part of the inquiry. But if we were thinking about, public safety, of course we would want them to de-escalate first. And of course we would want to look to say, wow, did the officer create this horrible situation in the first place? And we would want there to be, at a minimum, police discipline for that and and potentially base prosecutions on the fact that an officer created the situation and didn't de-escalate. And yet, when a jurisdiction like California is thinking of reforming its laws to do just that, where are the prosecutors? There's a few of them, again, there's a couple who are speaking out, but most of them are not. And I think if you're going to be the chief lobbyist for criminal justice and public safety, uh, and you want to make a claim that it's not just about your own professional interest, and you here you might be thinking, yeah, but what's their professional interest with the police? They work with the police every single day to make almost all their cases. Um, and, and for many of these district attorneys, they are getting donations to their campaigns by law enforcement unions and, and hefty ones. Uh, and so the relationship between prosecutors and police is a a cozy relationship, and it's very difficult for a prosecutor to come out and support de-escalation and looking at what an officer might have done to create a situation uh, if the police department itself doesn't want that, if the officers don't want that, because that's now going to create a relationship that's going to be tense with them, and so they stay away. Uh, But they shouldn't, because if they are, in fact, supposed to be about our public safety, all of us who, who live in these jurisdictions, they should be advocating for these things, and yet when we see them out there, you know, it is always on the side of the things that just make it easier for them to do their job, to extract pleas, uh, to get cooperation, and, and not these broader public safety issues that I really do think they should be speaking on.
0: So I'm going to indulge myself again by pulling together a couple of strands of this conversation and then pointing it um, in a direction that's right in the direction of one of my hobby horses. Um, Before I do that, let me, um, Jay, I'd like to ask you, this clock is off, so just let me know when it's 15 minutes before we have to end. I'd like to give the audience time for questions, so just give me a signal if you would. Thank you. All right, so um, we've talked about... uh, the maybe the um, it's a, it's a it's a bit of a rough or a sloppy term, but overcriminalization, the propensity we've got you know a lot of laws, and we we criminalize stuff that we probably shouldn't criminalize. So that's an issue. Um, I'm going to take us in the direction of of, um, of another issue in the system that um, I actually think maybe the most or one of the most uh, pathological elements of the system, and you talk about it, so I know this won't come as a surprise to you, but I want to I really spend some time on this because I think it's important people understand this about our criminal justice system. If you look at the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, uh, you'll notice a couple things right away. First, the, um, the, the framers spent a lot of time talking about criminal procedure, and a lot, particularly the Bill of Rights, has to do with the procedure for having a fair adjudication of criminal charges. can't miss that, right? right. The other thing that you can't fail to or you can't fail to see, is that, at least I would say, is that they designed the criminal justice system to put citizen participation at the very heart of it. And um, interestingly enough, the right to a criminal jury trial is the only right that's mentioned in the body of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And the Constitution almost certainly spends more words talking about jury trials than any other single topic. Um, and so I wanna, I wanna Read another quote from the book and, and, and invite you to um, not just elaborate, but now I'd like to have a conversation with you about this, because I really think this is, again, maybe the single biggest pathology um, in the system. So you say that the framers constructed a constitutional architecture to guard against pathological politics of the kind we've been discussing, but their design assumed a world of criminal trials and a simpler body of laws that no longer exists. Right. So we've talked about the body of laws and the, the fact that it's, you know, uh, we don't just have like eight felonies like they used to have in, in merry old England and you knew they were all bad, right? So let's talk about this, um, the, sort of the disappearance of the criminal jury trial, which was absolutely central to the constitutional architecture. And, but now we've got a situation where about 95% of all criminal convictions today are obtained through plea bargain. And let's be really candid about what that is. That's a confession. Uh, And 97%, more than 97% of all federal criminal convictions are obtained through plea bargain. Um, Not to be melodramatic, but history is replete with regimes that excelled at extracting confessions from their own citizens, and our country is very much a member of that club. Is that fair? Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's an article um, by John Langbein, "Plea Bargaining Is Torture," that draws the parallel between those prior regimes that tortured confessions out of people, and the idea behind it is that it's sanctioned. Exactly, it, it's, a, yeah. it's a coercive way to extract a, a guilty plea. So I, I think that is a fair way to, to put it.
0: Um, if you think about the many advantages um, that a, a uh, criminal jury trial present for the defendant, even a guilty defendant. Uh, particularly uh, now with um, you know, publicly supported uh, defense counsel. About 80% of people who go through the system have a, a government right. uh, paid for lawyer. Not always a public defender. Sometimes it's a private attorney who's working on you know, sort of for a voucher. Um, but, so basically, chances are the government's paying your defense costs. Um, you, the government carries a very a high burden of proof, beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, everywhere except Oregon, it will have to be to a unanimous jury. Um, the, because the prosecutor bears the burden of proof, if something goes wrong at the trial, that's usually going to be a problem for the prosecutor or it's a bigger problem for the prosecutor. There's a, you know, if they have an issue with a chain of custody, uh, if they have a witness uh, that either doesn't show up or can't remember um, or a police officer, let's say, with some credibility problems, right? That's a problem for the prosecutor. So, so looking at this from the standpoint of a defendant, uh, the ability to exercise your constitutional right to go to a jury trial looks like a really smart and, and valuable thing to do. And yet... And yet we've gotten to a point in our country's history where almost nobody chooses to do this. Right. What explains this? Lack of interest in exercising this incredibly fundamental and and not unique, but but um, it's not a right that very many people in the world in the history of the world have ever had even been able to exercise, and yet we as Americans choose not to. Why?
1: Yeah. So I I, the key word there is choose. (laughs) You know, it's a it's a constrained choice, uh, and I don't think it's that they have they don't have an interest in it. It's that the threat of going to trial of exercising your constitutional jury trial rights is just so high. A prosecutor could say to you, Look, if you decide to go to trial. Trial, I'm going to charge you with this other crime, because remember they're going to have this huge menu to choose from, and they're going to say, you know, I could think about lots of, you, you committed a drug offense, and I could think as a prosecutor, you know, I could charge you with this kind of... I'm crime. actually one
0: of the only libertarians, actually, who may have never have committed a oh, drug offense. Oh, I didn't offense, mean you,
1: that, yes, okay, okay <laughs> yes, uh, hypothetical you, um, ha, has committed a drug offense, and the prosecutor said, I could charge you with kind of a low-level possession version of a tel- using a telephone, uh, kind of a, a lower charge that doesn't have a very steep penalty, if you plead guilty right now. But if you go to trial, I am going to charge you with all of the quantity of drugs of everyone who's involved in this drug sales trade with you, your conspiracy, your your group of friends. And those quantities are going to get up pretty high. And when I charge those, um, it's going to trigger a mandatory minimum um, that believe it or not, it could be a life sentence, because um, the quantities that, that aren't, it doesn't take that long to get to, to life. And certainly to 20 years, we could get there in a, in a you know blink of an eye. Uh, and if you go to trial, I'm going to charge you with that. And as you, the defendant, might say to yourself, oh, gosh, you know, yeah, I had some drugs on me. And, you know, I did associate with these guys. So the conspiracy law is so, you know, I would say one other aspect of this is we've made it very easy to charge many things as well. So that, you um, going to trial, yes, we could challenge evidentiary rules and whatnot, and maybe those things will go your way. But if you lose on those things, at the end of the day, the prosecutor probably does have a pretty good case against you for these more serious charges, and you might not want to take the chance that you're going to lose. And now you know if you do take the chance and you go to trial, you are looking at a minimum of 20 years. So you can imagine even an innocent person. Now we could kind of roll back and say someone who's like, though, I, though, I didn't have the drugs. You know, they, they said they were mine, but they weren't mine. I was in the car, but they weren't my drugs. And I'd like to be able to explain to the jury how they don't belong to me. But if I do that and the jury doesn't believe me, if they think actually those were my drugs and not the other people in the car, and you're telling me I could get 20 years, but if I plead guilty, you know I only have to do one or two, I'll just plead guilty, you know. Or it's a fraud case, and you have somebody who has engaged in some, uh, you know, some level of embezzlement, some kind of fraud, and. The issue is, well, how big was, was the loss? How big was the fraud that took place there? Again, prosecutor might say, hey, look, you know, you plead guilty, and, and I'll agree that the amount at stake here was X, but, you know, you go to trial, and I'm going to hold you responsible for this way bigger loss amount. So to take this would be a federal example on why we have a 97% rate uh, in the federal government. Again, it gets to be such a risk that, that you, you don't want to take it. And, you know, the other thing when you're thinking about it as a prospective defendant is the jury's not going to be told what the sentence is at the end of this. So that's the kind of other big change from our early founding is you had just the handful of felonies, and everybody knew um, what the punishment was because it was likely to be death. You know, it was a severe punishment. And so you did have juries deciding in some of these cases, even if the person did it, you know, maybe maybe acquit anyways, because knowing what the punishment would be at the end, it would be disproportionate. And you could see that in, for example, a fair number of the lower level theft cases that would have triggered a death sentence. You see juries deciding not to convict because they knew the punishment. Now, jurors are not told what the punishments are, and they're not even told when it's a mandatory minimum. So the judge will have no discretion. So As a defendant, when you're thinking, you can't even think to yourself, well, gosh, surely a jury wouldn't want me to get 20 years because the jury will have no idea. And we look in these cases afterwards. Sometimes they'll interview the jurors, and when jurors are told what the sentence was, they are horrified because they never would have gone along with a sentence like that, but they didn't know. You know, they weren't told. So as a defendant kind of thinking about all this ex-ante, should I plead um, or should I take a chance and go to trial – you're, you, you have to, and you have to ask yourself, and how good is my counsel? You know, are they going to be able to do all the investigation to really make the case for me? You know, How does this all look? You can imagine many people are going to plead guilty. And they'll plead guilty even if they are absolutely innocent. They'll plead guilty even if they are innocent of the more serious thing that they're being accused of. They did something, uh, but they didn't do the more serious version of it. They may still go ahead and just agree with that because they don't want to take the chance of things turning out far more worse at at trial. Um, Because, you know, when you think about what that, I mean, 10 years, we throw these numbers out like they're nothing, but, you know, 10 years, if you have a child in your life and you're away for 10 years, you have missed the entire childhood, uh, uh, you know, of your your child. So think about if you were in that situation, what you might decide to do. You might take anything to at least be able to come back out in one years, two years, three years, so you could at least, you know, get to see part of your child growing up, as opposed to risking being away for those astronomical numbers that prosecutors throw out like they're nothing.
0: I have two children, five and four. And if I were to be threatened with torture or being away from them for 10 years, torture would be preferable. Um, so we may not physically torture people into taking plea bargains now, but it's possible that what we do is worse or at least more, more coercive. Would you agree with that? It puts
1: pressure on people that I think if any of us just stop and think what would we do in some of these circumstances, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I am a very risk-averse person by nature, so I might not be the best taste, test case for this. You know, I'm going to get to the airport four hours ahead of my flight. You know, I like to just, um, so maybe I'm like the bad example of this, but, but even if you're not super risk-averse, the chance that you could get 20 years in a system. You you don't know. You don't know what it is. And by the way, the prosecutor may not have told you any of the evidence that they have against you because they're under no obligation to share that with you during plea bargaining. You don't get that in places until like the eve of trial. So you don't even know what they know. And so you're, you're blindly trying to figure out, what should I do? What might they have up their sleeve? I'm afraid they're telling me they have a really strong case against me. Maybe they have some cooperating witness who's Willing to lie to get a break themselves, I don't know. I'm gonna not risk what is at stake in my life to just accept the offer in hand.
0: And, and let's quickly talk about this. I didn't. I didn't know we were gonna go in this direction. But this is something that that people ought to know about the system. And I, I want to contextualize it. Then I want to go back to something specific. Um, there, there are some kind of objectionable features of our system that sort of play out at the margins and in the shadows. Right. It's you know um, one example I think would be the prevalence of. Um, of false testimony from police officers. It's, I would say, widely accepted that it's quite common. And the system is largely tolerant of it, I would say. Um, There are people, and I will to say that I am one of them that, that uh, believe that so-called Brady violations by prosecutors are fairly common. And a Brady violation is when a prosecutor fails to produce materially favorable evidence that the Supreme Court has held must be produced um, uh, before a case goes to trial. And um, uh, Judge Kaczynski, among others, have taken the position that, in fact, Brady violations are rampant. There's an epidemic of them, he said. Um, but then there are um, other policies that are just front and center. And, and you, you touched on one just, just now. Um, There's an astonishing case out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is uh, back in my home state of Texas. Um, It was an unbank opinion, meaning the whole court got involved, and the issue in the case was was this. Can the government engage in plea bargaining negotiations with a defendant and, and consummate those, in other words, obtain a conviction, while withholding potentially exculpatory evidence that they know they would have an obligation to disclose if the case went to trial. And in this case, it was a videotape that showed that there was a he said, uh, well, it was a he, said he said situation. Prisoner and a guard got in a fight. The government said, prisoner, you started it. Um, and so they basically charged him with attacking a corrections officer, got him to plead guilty to that. The videotape that was in the possession of law enforcement showed that in fact it was the prison guard that started it, and the Fifth Circuit held that there was no obligation to produce that Brady material before taking this person's guilty plea. That's our system.
1: It's outrageous, and you know, when you think about how, how does that happen? So how does it? How does the prosecutor decide that's a good idea? You know that that's justice in any meaning of the word. Um, and then how do you have a court of law that endorses a decision like that? You know, and I do, and I don't want to get us off where you might have wanted to take our questioning, but I will say one of the chapters of the book has to do with who is on our judiciary enforcing our constitutional rights because we do right now, and you know it's predominantly the responsibility of the federal judiciary, our federal courts, to protect constitutional rights, and our federal bench is made up of roughly 40% former prosecutors. And that doesn't even count the people who may have had other government side enforcement experience. It's just the prosecutors. Um, And if you look also how many have uh, public defense, 10%. And a bench that is made up predominantly of people who themselves were in these law enforcement positions before maybe don't see that as the horrendous problem that it is. I think if you had a more professionally diverse bench that had seen cases up close from other perspectives besides prosecution, I'm not so sure you keep getting decisions like that, because we do, uh, you know, we have other, we have other courts around the country. Uh, some jurisdictions are better at enforcing, for example, this obligation to turn material over, uh, and and I think that's an area of doctrine that could change and should change. But I don't think it will if we continue to have a bench that itself looks just like the prosecutor's office. You know, it creates some of the same dynamics. They're also elected to office, so if you kind of think of in our country right now, um, you know, that's a pathway to professional success. A lot of people know that and think about it as they're thinking about their career aspirations in law. Well, you know, maybe I'll be a prosecutor and then from there I could become a judge. I could run for higher office. I could get these other positions. You know, people aren't thinking about that same pathway. I'll go into public defense and then I'll, you know, I'll become a judge. I'll become a politician because you you won't. Um, and so it's a pathway for those other those other fields. And what it means is that we have in our government a real domination of that worldview. And it's, it's very hard to check then against abuses by that same profession if you have so many people who, and again, I don't think it's bad faith. I I think it's just the way human nature works and how we think about our roles in society you know that if you have that job that's a good job you're doing good things the other people who have that job must be doing good they must have had their reasons you know and you just kind of give them the benefit of the doubt I think if it's someone who you have a professional affinity with and I don't think that's a good thing though for us as a society to have one profession dominate like that especially when that profession is in charge of you know putting all of us into potentially into cages uh, and depriving people of their liberty you would we should want a robust check on that, you know, just to make sure, not to suggest any of it is bad faith, but, but you know, get a, get a, you want a second opinion, right? You go to a doctor, you want to get a second opinion by, by somebody else. We should want a second opinion before we take away people's liberty, and it shouldn't just be that you end up with basically the same kind of person making that second assessment.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I think a really important point um, because you know, judges um, were sort of envisioned to be these, you know, neutral sort of referees that ensure that the rules get followed and uh, the law gets uh, interpreted, uh, you know, uh, dispassionately. Um, I will say, as I mentioned last night, we um, we actually did a study here. Uh, um, we've got the research and now we're, we're pulling it together, um, you know, in the narrative form. But we looked at the the background of every sitting federal judge uh, and just to see. Um, you know, sort of whether there was a disproportion. So you cited one study. Our numbers dovetail almost perfectly with yours. And we didn't just look at prosecutors. Well, that's yeah, what I thought, yeah, too. Yeah. But, um, so we didn't just look at prosecutors versus former defenders, and that is about four to one. We expanded it, and what we looked at was um, basically every judge whose formative professional experiences ex- were as an advocate for government, a courtroom advocate for um, government. Yeah. So not just prosecutors, but people who were in a courtroom um, advocating for government, versus people whose formative professional experiences were advocating for individuals against government. And that would include not only criminal defense attorneys, but like what I used to do, litigating for a civil rights organization. That ratio is seven to one. Seven to one former government advocates versus former advocates for individuals against government. And um, just a couple of points really quick about that. One is personal. Um, In some whimsical world where uh, a libertarian like me could get nominated to the federal bench, it would be ridiculous to say that my 15 years as a libertarian constitutional litigator would not color my you know, my approach to that job. You would absolutely want to know that about me. And it probably would help. I would probably be influenced the margin, right? Second point. We know that prosecutors basically believe this as well, and you know how we know it, is when they exercise their peremptory challenge at the rare trial that they find themselves in, one of the things that will get you struck from a jury is having a certain background. They know very well that your that your background may influence your decision making at the margin, and they're very eager to make sure that you know the jury looks a certain way. And guess what? Our judiciary looks a certain way. And your last chapter in the book um, is is about. Um, Basically kind of resetting that and saying, hey, is that what we want? Is that how our federal judiciary should look? Should it be uh, radically unbalanced between people whose formative experiences were advocating for government versus people whose formative experiences were ad- advocating for individuals? Is that, I mean, can we get there? How could we do that?
1: I mean, I think we can. I think as, you know, step one is telling people because I think maybe you don't know that. Um, and when you find out, you might think, okay, I now am going to, take an interest in who gets nominated to the federal courts. Other interest groups already do this. You know, If we were in an organization and we were talking about labor rights, uh, I guarantee you people who focus on labor rights issues pay very close attention, for example, to who gets appointed to the DC Circuit, the court here in town, which adjudicates key labor relations issues, and very much focus on that person's background to see you know, is, how are they in terms of labor versus management in their life. And they're very focused on it. So you'd need that same kind of attention by people who care about criminal justice to say, hey, I really, you know, so if you are motivated now, you have read Brian Stevenson's book, or you have read Cato Reports, or you have read The New Jim Crow, and you're thinking, yeah, I really care about these issues, you should care about the federal courts, and you should care about who gets nominated for these judgeships. And you should demand that the people Are getting nominated to these positions that have healthy skepticism, I would say. You know, it doesn't mean you always root against the government or for the government, but you just, you do have a healthy skepticism about the exercise of power. And to bring it back to your earlier point about the framers and the jury, you know, one of the reasons why the jury is all over the Constitution and they thought about it so much is because they recognized that judges were still part of the government. So even in this carefully constructed setup of separated powers that we have, the judiciary is still an arm of the government. And so the idea was to have at least a role for everyday people before the government could take somebody's liberty away to have them there. And so I think particularly when we're talking now where the jury trial right has just been Evaporated to the point that it has. At a minimum, we should be thinking about the guardians of the constitutional rights, those people who wear federal robes, you know, that those people understand the importance of the jury, the importance of all those constitutional rights that are in there. So I, you know, I am not in the book advocating for, you know, any kind of crazy um, activist theories of constitutional interpretation. I give examples in there of things that would we, be. We've got that covered. Yeah, that <laughs> things that would be, you know, any kind of. You know, happy originalist, traditional textualist judge. Uh, you know, in the model of Justice Scalia, for whom I clerked, would look at these issues and say, "Oh gosh, yes." You know, these are really strong constitutional claims. And yet, they're not getting enforced. And I think one of the reasons that they're not getting enforced is because people aren't being appointed to the bench that, that, that can see them for what they are. And I think part of it is just getting colored by this really big tilt. And, and you know, your statistics are even more. Jar- I mean, the 7 to 1 ratio is outrageous. Like, it's, it's just... Um, it's not healthy i don't think for a democracy and our republican government to have a setup like that i think we should want more professional diversity i will just get better outcomes we'll get better decisions i think it's helpful for anyone to want someone to check their bias. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I guess since I brought Justice Glee up again, I am thinking about, you know, it's kind of famously noted for wanting to have people within chambers who didn't necessarily share his political viewpoints. so-called um, counter clerk. Exactly, who could just make sure you know that the we were really deciding things on the basis of the law as opposed to where we'd like the law to take us. And I think that is a good professional model for anyone to have, to want to make sure that you're not just surrounded by people People who are going to agree with everything that you say, but we'll check you and make sure. You know, I, I, and I, I think if the judiciary gets tilted the way that it has, we're not getting that. So when we have our Court of Appeals judges sitting in panels, they may not be pushing back the way that they, they should. Um, and certainly a district court bench that is predominantly government-side experience you know, is less likely to look at the facts before them and those evidentiary rulings um, you know, with the kind of objective eye that I think we would want to see them have.
0: I think what a lot of people maybe um, don't appreciate, and now I've put myself on the spot because maybe you won't agree, and therefore you won't appreciate it, but um, <laughs> that um, you, can, you, can, you can kind of see what judges do and the production of case law is kind of almost an ongoing conversation. Um, among the judges themselves, but judges and advocates, um, and I think all of us can imagine a situation where, if you have a dinner party, for example, and the conversation turns to some, you know, controversial topic. I was just talking to some high school students this morning about guns, for example. That conversation is going to be much different depending on the mix of people who are sitting at the table, right? And um, and we should never want to have a kind of a monolithic conversation. We want to have a conversation uh, where, you know, sort of um, the relevant points of view are not only being introduced but advocated for. Yeah. Um, And it can really change the the outcome of, of, you know, the precedent, for example. It can change the actual outcome of cases.
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, uh, you know, if you... If you are a fan of Brian Stevenson, as I am, one you of the things of yes, yes, one of one of the things that he says is it's really important for people to get proximate, to get close to to others, to really understand to understand our criminal justice system. You have to get close to it. You know, you have to really be in there and talk to people who have experienced it. Be inside a prison, go inside of a jail, really get at the root of what it looks like on the ground. Because I think if you think of it too abstractly, there is also a way in which when that dinner party conversation, that conversation. In judges takes place, the stakes can get muted. You know, you can kind of lose track of what we're really talking about, but you can't lose track when you've actually physically been there and you've seen the conditions that we're talking about. Or you have... Um, talk to people who have faced those negotiations with prosecutors and know exactly how coercive they are what it what it really means to, to have those kinds of negotiations how they phrase things you know you know do, do they really threaten things or how do they explain that they're, they're you have a risk for a higher penalty when you talk to people who actually practice they explain it to you and they know exactly how that pressure works the conversations they have with their clients and having somebody there to talk about that and reiterate it I think does affect many of these kinds constitutional doctrines. Um, Many of them depend on certain assumptions we make about how things are working. You know, there's amicus briefs get filed in courts precisely because we think it's important for judges to hear about the factual background. Um, But we also know from studies of courts and the Supreme Court and others that having somebody who was there, one of the justices, with personal experience talking about it, has an impact on the other justices. You know, they kind of, if, if it's a case that involves that person's expertise from their prior life, the other justices pay closer attention to what they're saying and what they're telling them. So it's not just that you can make up for this with a good amicus brief by somebody explaining the factual background. It's helpful to have somebody there in the room that can actually say, you know, I, this is what I did. You know, let me tell you a little bit about it. And, you know, maybe they don't persuade them in that particular case or in that doctrine, but it's going to, as you say, as the law evolves and changes over time, it's, it's that background Information that you take with you then to the next case, or and then if you start to see a pattern, maybe you know you start to see. Um, we, we were talking before about qualified immunity, which is a doctrine uh, that allows police officers. Um, I don't know how to put this in the most charitable way, but it's a very favorable doctrine for law enforcement, uh, where they are not going to be held account- accountable for constitutional violations unless it was so blatantly obvious uh, that that they. We're committing a constitutional violation, so they they get away with a lot as a result of this doctrine. Well, the
0: doctrine enables the court to say, yes, your constitutional rights were violated, but we don't have a case directly on point in this jurisdiction, so there's going to be no consequences. So no
1: consequences, and I think, you know, I think that kind of, okay, if you'd been around a lot of people who had had involvement working with people who had had interactions with the police or on the defense side, and, you know, so maybe the first case, it doesn't affect you, but then as you keep getting case after case where you see law enforcement doing these things, maybe you are more readily able to see the um, because someone has kind of opened your eyes to the fact that this is a real possibility that they saw in their own life and now you're seeing the cases as they come through so I do think having that kind of professional background diversity is hugely important and and my hope I mean one of the main goals that I have in in writing this book is what I'm hoping to do is take people who care about this issue in an abstract way and have them channel it to the areas that I think would be most productive and one of the things that I do think is most productive is to pay attention to judicial appointments Mm -hmm. and really insist that you get the kind of nominees that reflect the professional diversity of the profession so that we get a bench that's going to be more able to look at these issues objectively and have better conversations about it amongst themselves.
0: So I want to do a slight shift. We're actually going to take a step back. uh, I'd like to focus on something that that you mentioned, um, but I think deserves more attention. And... um, I'm going to read a passage from this wonderful article that you wrote in 2003, so apparently you wrote it in middle school. um, (laughs) I wish. (laughs) Recharging the jury the criminal's constitutional role in an era of mandatory sentencing. And um, I'm going to uh, read a passage and explain why I'm picking up on it and how I think it might connect to this book. Um, Here you say, the framers continued to believe that the criminal jury was much more than a utilitarian fact-finding body. Instead, a common theme expressed at the time of the founding, compared the jury's power to that of a voter, checking the government and its laws. So I think one of the most interesting things, the most important things in, in modern criminal justice or, or um, in criminal law and criminal justice reform is the way in which the role of the jury has been reconceptualized. At the time of the founding, as you mentioned a moment ago, it would have been common for the jury to understand what the consequences will be if the def- for the defendant if they convict. Now it's almost unheard of. And prosecutors not only won't share that information with the jury, they'll fight like crazy to make sure the jury doesn't get that information. And just to give you an idea of what I mean, um, my wife was called for for jury duty, former Catoite, but uh, now runs a think tank. She was called for jury duty, um, amazingly enough, in the very courthouse where I clerked, before the very judge for whom I clerked, and therefore was not impaneled because she had just met him a couple weeks ago. Um, But it was a criminal case. And If she had participated in that case and come home at some point and said to me, you know, I'm troubled by this because I'm pretty clear this guy did it, but he seems like a very sympathetic person and, you know, it's a drug case and, you know, I'm a libertarian, so you kind of know what that, you know, what's going on there. Could you give me some idea of what will happen to him if we convict? If I were to go and look that up, and imagine it was some kind of a mandatory minimum that's sitting right there in the U.S. code. It's not a secret. There's no range. It's just right there. If I were to look up this publicly available information and communicate it to her, that is almost certainly considered to be felony jury tampering, right? Yep. So, um, so, th- so in, in, a, you know, in a real sense, um, much of modern sort of trial practice, if the did it at all, involved depriving jurors of information that they would have routinely had at the t- time of the founding. So that... The role of the jury, and this is, this is I have this hypothesis that maybe this is another reason why uh, the jury trial has, in, in essence, gone extinct. It's not only that plea bargaining has become so coercive, but the value of a criminal jury trial is less than it used to be. Yeah. Why? Because the only thing the jury is going to decide is basically whether the elements of the crime have been set. Did he possess those drugs? Are they, in fact, drugs? Is it more than this quantity? And the current conception of the juries, that's their entire role. That's it. They don't serve a, an injustice-preventing role. They don't to serve a government-checking role. They're not told about jury nullification, which, by the way, we call conscientious acquittal, because I think it's more accurate, uh, certainly less pejorative. Um, so would you agree with me that the, that the, 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 the decline in influence of the, of the criminal jury trial may be more significant than sort of most current criminal justice reformers give it credit for that may be more explanatory.
1: Oh, yeah, no, I think it's a, you know, as you pointed out, I wrote that a long time ago um, because I did think we were seeing a very disturbing trend of not allowing the jury to perform what I think was its originally intended role, which really was to be a very active check. I mean, there's a reason it's in them. Even before the Bill of Rights, there's a reason it's right in there in Article 3 because the framers thought that was hugely important and then you know it gets mentioned again when we get to the Bill of Rights because the idea when you go back and you do the, the reading is that you needed to have a check against government overreach. And when you think, okay, well, what is that check? Is it exercised by just finding specific facts? You know, no, that's ridiculous. Of course not. It's to be a check on the application of a law in a given case if applying that law would be excessive. And that was the design of it and the way it was intended. And it's not until we get to the middle of the 1800s, you know. They, so, what ends up happening and why it declines is a, a story of the rise of a professional class of lawyers who start to view law as more complicated and requiring professional judgment, and so the idea that a group of lay people would opine on on a law or its application falls out of favor.
0: And it did get more complicated. Yes,
1: it did. And so the court, the Supreme Court, decides in a divided opinion that's hundreds of pages. Um, you know, it's a doozy. Uh, before they used to write those hundreds of pages of, of opinions. Is that a
0: Supreme Court clerk jargon? Yeah. It, it's it's
1: and it, and I'll say not only it's a doozy, it's a poorly reasoned doozy um, for the majority and poorly historically supported, but they decide, you know, no, the jury has may have the power to do it, because you do have the power to do it. You have the power to go into a case, and if you think... If your anticipation of what that sentence would be is that it would be too long and you vote to acquit on that basis, you know, that, that and that defendant is acquitted, that's it. You know, double jeopardy means they can't be tried again. So the power is there in a jury to do this. But the Supreme Court said, yeah, it's a power, but it's not a right, you know, which is weird because you would think, didn't they sort of think that through the framers when they established the jury and then they put in the double jeopardy clause? Seems like it was a deliberate <laughs> giving of a right to the jury to do this, but the Supreme Court says. No, you know it's a power, not a right. And so what that means is that over time, as debates come up about well, what could we tell the jury about our case? Can we tell them about a mandatory minimum sentence? And you have judges saying no, yeah, nope, because nope, that's not their role. They, yes, they may have the power if they did find out about it, but but they're not entitled to hear about it in the course of this case. Or you know, could we tell the jury about why the defendant thought this? A conscientious objector defendant who thought a law was unjust can the defendant explain it to the jury? Nope, you know because again, it's a it's a power, not a Right. And so over time, the jury's ability to check the government is going to dissipate because it's not going to check then on whether or not the government properly selected this defendant for the application of this law. Because even though the defendant may fall within the letter of the law, you know, he or she's not within the spirit of it because the sentence would be too grossly disproportionate. That checking function goes away. And that means that now when prosecutors are threatening defendants um, with uh, longer sentence if they go to trial, a charge that's more severe, a defendant's going to know that the jury isn't going to be a very valid check for them on that part of it. It'll just be on the facts. So it's really just the defendant's anticipation of, is the jury likely to find the facts in my favor or not? And when you think about a lot of these cases, the facts. May, it's not like CSI kind of facts that you're seeing. You know, in a lot of these cases, it's just the testimony and it may just be the testimony of a police officer. So at that point, it is just whether, will the jury believe the defendant or the police officer? And even if the defendant is telling the truth and thinking, oh, I, the, will the jury, but will the jury believe me? You know, will the jury believe me about what took place in this case and exactly that prison guard that you were talking about before, you know, without knowing there's a video, then it's just going to be, who does the jury believe as a matter of credibility, and you're, you're probably not going to take the chance. If instead, you also knew that the jury was not only assessing the factual aspects of the case, but would have this additional layer of saying, and in light of having done it, you're going to get punishment X, you could imagine more defendants thinking to themselves, I may go to trial. And exactly. you know the right. empirical support for that would be communities that we know have higher knowledge of the going rate for offenses. So there are certain um, urban jurisdictions in particular, uh, Detroit, the Bronx, here in the District of Columbia, where you have a jury pool that has better knowledge of the going rate for various drug crimes um, because we incarcerate so many people that they probably know somebody who has been justice involved and so they kind of know what the punishment might be. And the rates of acquittal in communities where there's greater knowledge are higher. Um, So they weren't told about it, because they're not allowed to be told about it, but they happen to have the information just from their life experience. And the acquittal rates are higher in those places. And I think that tells us what we would maybe see had we had more of that kind of knowledge broad-based. But how do you get that information? Because the last footnote I'll put to this is not only would Clark have been potentially prosecuted for uh, jury tampering for doing that, When we had outside our New York courthouse uh, a few years back, this elderly man um, in his 80s, and he set up a little booth, uh, and he was part of this fully informed jury association just to let people know generally about your right in a given case if you want to acquit, that you have that power under the Constitution. So just explaining people's constitutional rights. And it bothered the judges in that courthouse so much that they complained to the US Attorney's Office, and the US Attorney's Office- Just down the hall. Yes, I yeah. uh, picked up the phone, and we know this happened. You know, picked up the phone, said this guy, get him out, um, and so he was he was prosecuted. Now the great irony of that case, which I loved, was that it then became a front page story on the New York Times. So then everybody started reading about their right to, <laughs> to essentially conscientiously object, uh, nullify, however you want to call it, because it became a front page story in the New York Times. And he ultimately, in that case, it was found uh, they interpreted the, the tampering statute not to apply uh, to, to his actions. But but just think about a kind of. Let's,
0: let's say the name, we, Judge Kimball Wood. Yes, she Judge Kimball Wood's decision
1: mm-hmm. um, in that case that you know that it would chill. We should, should avoid an interpretation that would chill first the exercise of first speech rights. But we still see today around the country when other people have tried to do equivalently set up their little booth, um, that charges are still brought against them, and and I think it shows you that they clearly think that giving this information would have an effect. (laughs) Um, So I think they also believe it, not just what we know from these urban jurisdictions where there's a broader base of knowledge, but the fact that, again, it's one of those areas they're fighting giving the information.
0: Well, I'm going to get, we're going to go to questions. I'm going to do a little Cato plug real quick and a plug for my colleague, Jay Schweiker. We actually have a strategic amicus campaign going on right now. We have filed amicus briefs in two felony prosecutions for uh, distributing jury nullification literature, uh, one in Michigan, one in Colorado. We are also filing briefs in cases that involve the question of whether uh, the defendant has uh, the right to have the jury informed of a potential mandatory minimum. That's, there's a case in the Second Circuit on that right now. And we're going to do, we're, we're looking for opportunities to file amicus briefs to make the argument that. Uh, ordinary sort of third parties who aren't involved, like me, for example, talking to my wife, I, I, that my ability to communicate to her publicly available information about a case raise, at, at least raises First Amendment qu- uh, concerns if the government tries to censor that speech. Um, she, she, has to, she has to listen to me rant about jury nullification probably about once a week, and if she ever gets impaneled on a criminal jury, it's an interesting question, whether I have to just have to shut up for duration <laughs> of that trial. I'm sure it would probably be a relief to her, but uh, okay, so... Wonderful, wonderful book and a wonderful conversation. Thank, Thank you. you very much for that. Um, and um, let's give her a Thank hand. You. Got about uh, 12 minutes for uh, questions before we go to lunch. And I'm going to um, start sort of towards the back because you deserve, you, you deserve some special treatment if you've been hanging around the back and you haven't been able to see her so close. Yes, in the glasses, sir. Glasses, and then we'll go to the gentleman in the blue shirt. <laughs> Uh, there's a microphone coming up to you, and we're we're online, so um, uh, speak in the microphone so other people can hear. Uh,
2: question about trial penalty
0: um, and speak up. Question about trial penalty. Perfect. Um, so we all are not we all, but most people in this room probably know the effect that Willie Horton had on sentencing and punishment and truth and sentencing um, in general. I'm wondering because there have been some famous cases of people who have gotten acquitted when sort of the public. Perception is that they were guilty. If there is any research on the public perception of jury trials and how they function currently, without getting unnecessarily controversial, the thing that comes to mind was Michael
2: Jackson's acquittal in 2006, and now there's this big documentary, you know, breaking into all that. I am obviously sympathetic to the issue of trial penalty and would hope people would have faith in it, but I'm just wondering if there's any research that shows that, you know, major cases like that
0: have deteriorated trust in the jury trial. So really quick, just for terminology purposes, a trial penalty is a term of art that refers to the differential between uh, the punishment that you will receive if you go to trial and are convicted versus what you have been offered by the prosecution. And it is astonishing uh, what that gap can be. Um, I mean, it can go from life potentially to just a few years. Um, um, There are some countries in which they impose a cap, like a 30% discount, but we do not. And prosecutors essentially have unfettered discretion to uh, basically load it up and discount it however far they want. Yes. But anyway, so I didn't want to. I just wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page about trial penalty board. Any any information about? Yeah, how I mean, there is I that? think
1: that what makes people more angry than anything is what looks to be leniency or someone getting away with bad actions, and that more than anything drives the momentum for stiffer punishments, for relaxing burdens of proof, for making cases easier. So, so to the extent the public gets upset about things, it's rarely that someone got a sentence that's too long. In fact, we almost never hear about that. Um, You know, just now, there's starting to be more instances where there's some attention to that. But what gets people riled up more than anything are instances either of an outright acquittal or what looks to be a lenient sentence. You may know some examples from recent news events where... um,
0: Over the Eastern District of Virginia, maybe? Yes,
1: exactly. And, you know, uh, for example, I hang out with a lot of progressive criminal justice types. Uh, You know, it's just how I roll. And yet, there they were... After that sentence, so angry, how can that be? You know, maybe we do need to have mandatory sentencing guidelines and maybe we do need to and I thought, oh my, this is exhibit A for how you get mass incarceration. And so not only do I think that high-profile acquittals or lenient sentences have an effect on the public, I think they have the effect on the public because I think it, those are the stories that get attention and get people upset. And instead of, again, kind of reflecting back and thinking, okay, what, what should we do about this kind of crime and how we prevent it and what's the right response, it tends to just be, well, maybe then an opportunistic law enforcement official prosecutors association might come in and say, well, you know what you really need to do? We got to get rid of the statute of limitations on every possible offense that involves this. Or we need to change the mens rea standard, the mental state that the defendant might need to have in a given case because, gosh, that's hard for us to prove. You know, just thinking of various high profile cases around will often lead to a request for a particular kind of reform. And the public, primed to be thinking about just that case that got them so upset, thinks, yes, because I don't want that injustice to happen again. The problem with that is without thinking about what is that law likely to actually look like as applied going forward, is it going to apply in the next case to somebody that looks just like the case that made you angry? Or in fact, and more likely, it's probably going to apply like all of our laws do, disproportionately against poor people in communities of color. It's going to be used as a hammer to get them to do certain things. And so whatever the high-profile case was that led to its creation... It's going to have effects that are going to have nothing to do about that, and we'll never hear about it again because we won't hear about all the ways in which there are these, you know, plea bargaining uh, relationships that are so coercive because those don't make the news. But those cases that you're talking about, they do. Um, So not only do I think it has an effect, I think it is the the key driver of how we end up in the situation we're in.
0: And, of course, we were talking about the four-year sentence handed down by Judge Ellis to Paul Manafort. And what I would say, just to get a little, you know, editorial point in here, if you think that four years— is a light punishment. Go spend four hours in prison. Seriously. Um, Four years is by no stretch of the imagination a light punishment. It is a disproportionately light punishment compared to what we do to other people. But it's not so much that Manafort didn't get punished severely enough. It's that we are punishing others too severely.
1: Right, and too often the temptation is, well, let's level everybody up. Let's raise everybody's sentences. Let's raise his, as opposed to thinking, well, we need to bring down those other
0: sentences because they're too long. Uh, Okay. so. Back corner, madam. Hi. Just a general question about the law.
1: um, Is there no discovery in criminal cases like there is in civil interrogatories, written documents? list of witnesses? Because you seem to indicate that the prosecutor only has to turn over evidence the day before. Isn't there a discovery process with a timeline?
0: It, so first of all, it varies significantly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to steal but it. it uh, So there are, there are a handful of jurisdictions that have what's called open file discovery. North Carolina, Texas. Um, North Carolina, Texas, actually. Those are the two I know. Yeah. I don't know if they're um, and, and essentially what that entails is that the defense counsel will get to see essentially anything in the prosecutor's file that is not obviously sensitive, like the identity of a, of a, of a witness who could be threatened or something like that. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, you have jurisdictions like New York State Which, why why don't you talk about New York State? I I probably would, I just, I'm going to start spitting. I'm going to be so mad. Yeah,
1: so I I mean, it's a really great question to ask because it doesn't look like that. So the prosecutor, you know, can impanel most places, a grand jury, get all the evidence they need. They gather, you know, they have unlimited access to the police witnesses, a team of investigators. They have all kinds of access to whatever they need. And if they want to compel the defendant to turn over evidence, they have the subpoena power to get everything from the defendant. So what does it look like on the other side, so in in a state like New York, where I'm from, um, they turn their evidence over basically right before trial. You do not have access to that evidence as a defense lawyer as you're trying to decide whether to plead guilty or not. So right now in New York, there's pending legis- There's a proposed bill that would make files um, more like in North Carolina and Texas. The- this idea of open file. And currently, our District Attorneys Association has come out against it because you know they said people will die. You know that you can't do it as a public safety matter because if we have to turn over all of our information then defendants will get names of witnesses and they'll start intimidating witnesses and they'll kill them and you know there'll be carnage you absolutely cannot do this this is a public safety concern now no one wants that and so One question you could ask is, wow, what's happening in Texas and North Carolina, right? It must be a bloodbath, um, given what they've said. And in fact, of course not, right? There are ways in which you can um, redact the information. You can target that. But to get to the cases where that is never going to be an issue, the vast run of cases, you turn over the file. So it does look more like civil litigation. And people can make um, informed decisions like they would in civil litigation to decide, should I settle or not? It helps to have the information about what each side has. In our criminal system, one side has all the information and the other side just has to guess. So it's a terrible system for that, but it's also terrible because even the most well-meaning prosecutor in the world, has a lot of cases and a huge docket. And often when they don't turn over information, it's not on purpose. It's by accident because they just have so much to do. When you have an open file discovery system, you have, again, another check on that prosecutor because now at least, instead of just relying on them to go through, make sure they handed everything over, which by the way gets complicated because in a lot of prosecutors' offices, it may be there's more than one prosecutor handling the case. So prosecutor A starts with the file, but then you know they get transferred to a new unit. It goes to prosecutor B. They lose the thread of what they need to turn over. If you have open file discovery, it allows the defense to figure out what is in fact, you know, they can look in there and find what is valuable and helpful to them. It, it blows my mind that there is the opposition that we're seeing, particularly when we know it can work in other places. So, you know, stay tuned in New York to see what actually happens. You know, there's a pretty active advocacy movement to try to get it passed. And, pressure on, on the governor, who um, seems to want to claim some kind of progressive criminal justice mantle. We'll see. Um, but, but the issue that is being disputed is this public safety issue. And we could look to the actual facts, or we could just trust the word of an organization that, once again, would benefit by not turning over the files.
0: I would say, as a rule of thumb, if, if you find that Texas and North Carolina are way out in front of you on criminal justice reform, you ought to check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> we got time for one more question. I promised this gentleman in the blue shirt there, so he's going to get the last word.
2: <clears throat> Hi, I was uh, incarcerated in the Maryland penal system for 1,300 days and I spent 20 months as uh, my classroom's, uh, the prison's special education tutor. And I was, had access to the students' files and literally all of them had lead pain exposure, a head injury, something that happened to them in their youth and their upbringing to lead into their educational disability which didn't really seem to play into any of their cases, talking to them and talking to the teacher. Um, and you've talked a lot about the judicial issue, the 7 to 1 ratio or 4 to 1, and the way judges seem to keep their seats, lasts a long time, any kind of turnover will take a while. And I was really surprised to learn along the way that judges just become judges. There's no new test, to become a lawyer to a judge or anything. Um, and so do you think there's any room for bringing in, you know, biology, medicine, you has all this brain plasticity, exposure to toxins, head injury... To have judges make more humane decisions and understand that if you take, you know, kids, 14-year-olds, teenagers, and keep them in these neighborhoods and these communities, of course they're going to commit crime. And criminologists have been saying that for 200-plus years. I'm just wondering where you thought about, if you thought about that, where you thought bringing in some hard science biology might fit in? So
1: judges do a terrible job with science, so I would certainly um, endorse and support across the board with a whole range of forensic specialties, for example, where they rely on junk science and allow testimony about it. That's a whole, we could have a whole other discussion about that. So, you know, they could use better training, but honestly, I have a little bit of skepticism that that would do the trick to make them more sensitive to the kinds of things that you're talking about, and for my money, if I had to kind of pick what I would have have judges do? I'd like them to go into prisons and actually spend a day um, interacting. And you know, there's so many judges who've never set foot in a prison. I think that's you know professionally irresponsible. I think they should get to know the people that they are sentencing and the places where they'll be sending them and the kinds of programming. You know, I think they need to get proximate, and I think that would. Have a bigger impact than even reading about the science, because you know they know about a lot of this. I mean, it, it, some of that science isn't even all that complicated. About the kinds of trauma that people are facing growing up, um, their exposure to what, if it's lead, um, the idea that most of the people, I mean, many of the people in our system, you know, they may be perpetrators of crime today, but they are likely to have been victims of crime in their past. You know, that stuff is available and known, and it, it gets to judges in briefs. But it, you know, I don't know if it has the resonance that it should be having. And so while I endorse your suggestion for sure, I also think it would probably do them even more good, frankly, to maybe assume that kind of teaching role that you had for a day and really get to get to know some of the people and see the circumstances where they're sending them. I feel like every prosecutor in this country and every judge for sure should have to visit the facilities that they send somebody to. I I think the fact that that's not true
0: is crazy. And on that note, all right, the book is <laughs> Prisoners of Politics. It's for sale outside. If you are listening online, um, your next click should be to Amazon to order a copy. Um, or I think Barnes & Noble. Or Barnes & Noble. i Amazon's having a
1: little bit of a problem, honestly.
0: Or Politics yeah. & prose. So um, I think this is really one of the best single resources. If you're just going to read one thing to really get a handle on both the pathologies and potential solutions for criminal justice, um, put this at the top of your uh, list. Um, let's uh, all uh, thank Professor Barco for, making the, for writing the book and for coming down yeah, here.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You